Hey, this is Kate Nocera, and you're listening to No One Knows Anything, the BuzzFeed News Politics Podcast. Every week, we talk about this insane time in American politics, break down a few stories, and try and make sense of things. And I'm Charlie Warzel, a senior tech writer here at BuzzFeed, and I am finally back from Texas. <laughs> Thank God. Yes. So, Charlie, what are we going to talk about this week? This week, we're going to talk about the OK hand sign and the accompanying emoji and whether or not that has become a white power symbol. Uh, We're going to break that down a little bit. Uh, We're going to talk about how Donald Trump keeps saying nice things about dictators and authoritarians and inviting them to the White House. And finally, we're going to talk about uh, something that happened on Wednesday when Sean Spicer uh, got up in front of the White House press corps and talked at length about the specifics of our nation's Great Wall. Lastly, it is 11 a.m. on Thursday morning, and I'm telling you that because by the time you listen to this, who knows what could have happened. So there's a lot going on in Congress right now. Uh, The health care bill maybe will finally pass the House, and they're also finally going to get a funding bill done. But we're going to take you outside of D.C. a little bit and joining us to talk about alt-right memes and journalism. We're really going outside of D.C. Uh, is Joe Bernstein, who cover, who also covers tech for BuzzFeed News. Joe, I use the OK emoji and OK hand symbol a lot. Can I can I still do that? Kate, I'm sorry to inform you, but. You are a white supremacist. No. <laughs> you should. When you said, uh, I just have to like let everyone uh, at home know that when you introduced Joe as a person who could break down alt right memes and journalism, Joe Joe looked like he was about to die. <laughs> <laughs> That's more, your job, more than Joe. Usual. Yeah. So why uh, why has this come up? Like, why are we talking about this today? Okay, so this whole thing kicked off, or not really kicked off, but um, it came to popular attention because two sort of popular pro-Trump media people, uh, Mike Cernovich and Cassandra Fairbanks were behind the podium in the White House briefing room and they gave an OK sign, like the universal OK sign. That's, you know, your thumb and your forefinger in a circle and then three fingers pointed up. Everyone's made it. It's a fairly innocuous gesture. Um, But a Fusion reporter named Emma Roller took a picture of that and tweeted that it was two people in the White House briefing room making a white supremacist hand gesture. So at some point um, in February, 4chan, which is um, uh, a fever swampy message board, like no rules where a lot of like modern trolling has sort of modern trolling, white supremacy. Um, They were on the Trump train from the very beginning and have been his kind of meme army. Um, they think that the mainstream media, of which BuzzFeed and most other outlets that are not, I don't know, Daily Caller are a part or Breitbart, um, will call anything white supremacist, um, that we are just totally um, out, to, out to call everything um, neo-Nazi or white supremacist. Easily triggered, I think. Yes, yeah. that's true. Um, so anyway... Uh, they decided to try and make the OK sign, which is, of course, this incredibly widely used gesture, uh, a white supremacist symbol, and get the media to report on it. Which they did. Yeah, which they basically did. So uh, Fairbanks and Cernovich using it um, at the White House, I, in my view, is kind of a, it's like in-group signaling. It's basically saying to people who love them on the internet, like, we get your jokes and we're making them on the, you know, a very, very big stage. 
the thing that that I think is actually most interesting about this discussion is is sort of less that you know like the media fell for the troll necessarily, but it's 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 sort of now the sort of idea that where are the lines on ironic racism and when does it become actual racism? And it's sort of this really tricky question that I think we've kind of dealt with, you know, offhand uh, online for a while. But like in 2017, it is sort of like a a crucial question when it comes to, you know, pro-Trump media and trolling in general. And what where are the lines on this stuff? In your I mean, opinion? there's no easy answer, and it's it's just totally about context. I mean, um, one of the other symbols of white supremacy that they've ginned up is milk, like the cow juice. Uh, <laughs> we talked uh, about milk a lot last week. By the milk way, milk comes yeah. up in this podcast have... too frequently. <laughs> right. um, well, you know, it does a body good. <laughs> Basically, at some point, um, these people started saying, okay, you know, because milk is this pure white beverage, and I think they have some kind of like pseudoscientific claims about how people of European ancestry metabolize milk better, which is just like, what the fuck are you even talking about? Good Lord. Um, This is kind of a tangent, but at the Shia LaBeouf art installation, he will not divide us. Um, A bunch of alt-right trolls showed up and started guzzling milk. And honestly, it looked kind of intimidating and scary and like a a, a Klan rally. And it's like, oh, my God, like maybe milk is like evil. Um, But like clearly it's not. I just think it's it's totally about context. And like the, the obviously as journalists, we exist to put things in context. But it's these are such kind of specific micro context that it's extremely hard um, to to to. Uh, explain them to our readers. And and to be fair to the OK sign users of the world, like, I mean, the first outlet that picked this up was The Independent. And the story that they ran cited, you know, that the Anti-Defamation League called the, you know, the OK sign a, a white power, like, hate symbol um and, and and that just wasn't true. They had they had the, the you know the, they had the symbol wrong, and and I think it kind of speaks to like a how unprepared the mainstream media is to deal with good trolls, like people who are, who are you know kind of have this ingenuity to make this stuff up, and and b just like how how careful like you're sort of saying like you have to be, and how much context you need before you sort of like reflexively you know cry Nazi. That's exactly right, and. I think what these people do is uh, they see kind of uh, the mainstream media and then kind of traditional groups like the ADL as existing in an ecosystem, and um, they can be used together to sort of to, to be trolled. To come back to the milk example, one of the things that really kind of fired that was um, PETA, uh, the uh, you know the Prevention or mm-hmm. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, uh, had a blog post about how milk was a sign of white supremacy. And it's just like, like, what is PETA thinking? And then, of course, the people online can seize on this and, you know, roll their eyes and, and, and say, you know, look at the this kind of like liberal media, like nonprofit access that's just mm-hmm. out to call everyone a, a Nazi. One thing that I was curious if you've thought about, Joe, is is Pepe the Frog is sort of like was like the first sort of co-opted symbol um, of of this and now you sort of have the okay sign i know that like 4chan people were talking about the peace sign as like representing there are only two genders and they're Mm -hmm. just they're gonna like try to you know keep doing this if they keep having success are we gonna reach a place where doing the okay sign 
like where that tr- kind of bleeds into actual like popular culture in terms of like don't do that you don't want to be caught doing that or like you don't want to be caught with the frog i mean or are we just going to become manure do you think to all this uh i was just envisioning a future where like people say to each other you don't want to be caught with the frog <laughs> it's terrifying a lot of people after my story were saying well it doesn't matter that they're joking you know, the Nazis took a totally innocuous symbol, the swastika, and turned it into this symbol of evil and 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 um, and fascism. I think the alt-right operates in a different way. They don't have, I mean, Kate, you know, f- feel free to disagree with me, but I don't think they have, like, political power yet. Um, I know oh. Bannon. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I mean, I, I would disagree with you. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me put it this way, Kate. You do still need to, like, take them. You still need to put them in context and think about who they are and what their influence is. And, and um, I also think it's, it's, it's worth thinking about whether they have actual goals in, in the same way as, like, a political, like, a cohesive political group which I don't think they do. I think there's something also, too, that, like, I, I think that, like, quote-unquote meme warfare is, is, is like, there's legitimate reality to that, but I think also, like, meme warfare isn't, isn't like, a, you know, a, a political party, like, strategy, or, you know, it's not, it's not going to get health care passed, probably. Right, and meme warfare also isn't inherently partisan. I mean, there's nothing that says that these tactics can only be used by right-wing trolls. And, and I think uh, what you're going to see eventually is every political party in every nation state adopt these tactics in some way, shape or form. And, and the right just happens to be pretty far ahead at this point. I think that's a good place to, uh, to leave it, Joe. Thank you for wading into the fever swamp and, and reporting back to us. A-OK. So there's an interesting way that Donald Trump likes to talk about world leaders with maybe some authoritarian tendencies. Here he is on North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. A lot of people, I'm sure, tried to take that power away, whether it was his uncle or anybody else. And he was able to do it. So obviously he's a pretty smart cookie. And here he is talking about Egypt's General Sisi. We are very much behind President el-Sisi. He's done a fantastic job in a very difficult situation. We are very much behind Egypt and the people of Egypt. Here's Trump talking about Russian President Vladimir Putin. I say it's better to get along with Russia than not. And if Russia helps us in the fight against ISIS, which is a major fight and Islamic, terrorism all over the world. Right. Major fight. That's a good thing. Will I get along with him? I have no idea. He's a killer, though. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We got a lot of killers. Well, you think our country's so innocent? We're talking about this this week because uh, Donald Trump gave a series of interviews where he obviously lavished some praise on these guys, and and the White House had also invited uh, the president of the Philippines, uh, Rodrigo Duterte, to the White House, um, controversial guy. Here to break this all down with us is Hayes Brown. Hi, Kate. So it's not uncommon for presidents to meet with controversial leaders of foreign countries, correct? Super correct. I mean, the, the U.S. has a lot of interests in the world, and some of those interests don't really line up with our commitment to human rights and our values. What's weird about this is how willing Trump seems to be to embrace these not-so-great people. Does he 
address at all sort of the human rights violations of any of these folks? Not that we can tell so far. I mean, he, he during the conversation with Duterte, for example, who is a pretty bad dude, given the fact that uh, as part of his crackdown on drug users in the Philippines, has basically sanctioned death squads to do extrajudicial killings of people rather than taking them in for trial. He's compared himself to Hitler in this respect, saying that Hitler killed three million Jews, which is a wrong number, uh, and there are three million drug users in the Philippines. So these are terrible things. But there's no indication that in his conversation with Duterte, Trump at all brought up these human rights violations. So I think one thing that, that's fascinating here is sort of um, there's always when you're dealing with foreign policy, I feel like like layers of um, uh, of sort of like vernacular and, and mm-hmm. sort of like a parliamentary procedure to it. And, and I think what's interesting is, is the way in which Trump has spoken about some of these leaders, including Duterte. And it, it seems like it's 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 kind of maybe like not admiringly is 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 the thing. Is the thing, but it, it's definitely more. It's friendly, nicer, yeah. Right? It's, it's like, much nicer than you would come to expect from these statements. I mean, uh, usually it's couched in like diplomatic language, like "Oh, they had a very civil conversation about these issues, and the president raised human rights issues with the president while calling for yada yada yada." Uh, usually, you they at least slip in those lines that express the fact that the U.S. cares about these things. They didn't even bother to do that in these readouts. Trump. Getting rid of that language is sort of a signal that we just don't really care. The U.S. doesn't really mind. Is there a bizarre world where these types of meetings that sort of, you know, don't uh, are are not standard operating procedure where where it actually like could be beneficial to sit down with North Korea and and like that by sort of getting rid of a lot of the, you know, the, the normal the norms? there could be some progress? I mean, I see what you're saying. And this is something I think that Obama got attacked for back in the 2008 campaign, actually. He said, I will sit down with Iran. I will negotiate with Cuba. He said these things. But he said them with like as part of a strategy, that with the idea that there are going to be certain preconditions that have to be met before we actually sit down and talk to these people. Uh, and the the, U- the U.S. government has tried to clean up Trump's statements a little by saying that, oh, there's all these conditions that would have to be in place before meeting with Kim Jong-un uh, that they would ha- that North Korea would have to do before we actually got to that point. But where that gets thrown off is the is the fact that Trump still said that he would be honored to meet with Kim Jong-un. And that's, I think, the twist that really shifted things from being, oh, I can see how this could maybe be a like peace offering sort of deal to being, I don't I don't know what he's talking about here. But the one thing I think is interesting, though, is that is that what you're saying is is that these statements kind of hinge on like a word and that there's and, you know, like whether it, it's honored versus just like, you know, I would meet, I would be honored to is, you know, is like a huge bridge yeah, too right. far. And for and, yeah. and for, you know, sort of, I don't know, for so many people who who voted for Trump, who, you know, who either believe in his deal-making abilities or just his non-Washington, like Washington, non-government right. sort of ways. Like, I mean, I, I, it, it feels to me like, like, there, like there is a possibility that, like, I, does this whole infrastructure of parliamentary procedure need, really actually need to be sort of in place? Or 
is it all just i don't know i guess i'm I mean, asking I, I you the same I, thing but i know but it, i totally understand where you're coming from because these are all like norms that are based off of like 19th century diplomacy and it's it's not really clear what how these sorts of things should change in the 21st century. It's just uh, the status quo is the status quo for a reason, it feels like in this case, because, I mean, these are like really big issues and you don't want to toss words around lightly. Uh, I mean, that's my stance, at least, and the stance of a lot of like the foreign policy wonks that I know and chat with on Twitter. Uh, it's not so much that we're like set in our ways. It's the fact that every word just feels like it really matters when it comes to foreign policy. But the U.S. has long met with, you know, dictators or authoritarian presidents and the you know that like saying publicly like yes mm -hmm. we're going to hold them to account and then yeah. and then not right like like is trump just like dropping mm -hmm. all those pretenses and 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 is i i mean i'm kind of like with charlie here like could that end up like getting Actually getting rid of the hypocrisy. I know it's, yeah, no, I know like, it's very confusing because you have 30. Yeah, like you have 30 years of norms. And so you're dropping all these pretenses and everyone's like freaked out because it's so fucking different. But it's not like anything really like got done or. Yeah, it's not like yeah. geopolitics better. is like, <laughs> like just is, peachy keen before. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, I totally yeah. get that. And there's like there's definitely always there's been like concerns about hypocrisy in U.S. foreign policy for basically ever where the US will say one thing and do a totally different thing but what's really got people freaked out I think is the fact that it's not just a that the US is saying different things it's that it, it feels like a crumbling of like the world order that was set up after World War II where certain things are just supposed to happen the US is supposed to be the one out there promoting democracy promoting uh, their way of life as the way things should be and it's gotten a lot of countries to follow along but as you know Russia and China have offered alternative models uh, there, there's concern that you know Trump's sort of laissez-faire approach to these sort of topics will undercut us in the world and countries will go oh wait so I can get a, the same deal but without this human rights bullshit from someone else, that sounds way better. I'm going yonder. And and I feel like the best argument is is to look at, you know, like, I don't know, either some of the powerful journalism that's come out of, like, the Philippines. Mm -hmm, like, you know, mm -hmm. there is this amazing New York Times interactive with, you know, photos of these, of these you know, killings on, uh, of the, not just drug dealers, yeah, but drug users. And, mm -hmm. like, um, there's, uh, there's, like, a, a quote from the photographer, and he says, like, he says, I have worked in 60 countries, covered wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and spent much of 2014 living inside West Africa's Ebola zone, a place gripped by fear and death. What I experienced in the Philippines felt like a new level of ruthlessness. Police officers summarily shooting anyone suspected of dealing or using drugs. Um, it, it that that to me is like yeah like that's that feels like the thing that you know the the best counter to this is like this is mass murder. Yeah, I've been talking like very like high level international politics and norms sort of things, but that's the basic truth of it. These are not great people. They are sanctioning the murder of people whose only crime was having an addiction in the case of Duterte or in the case of Sisi speaking the truth in terms of journalism and the free press or uh, Turkish President Erdogan, uh, his suppression of uh, the freedom of speech ahead of the referendum that he had recently that mm -hmm. gave him way more power. On the broad scale, on the broad, like high minded level, yes, uh, this is all bad for the US and what this means for the world. On, on the smaller scale, it's just really, really not cool to make googly eyes at these people who are 
constantly committing crimes against their people. On that cheerful note. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Always thanks, a pleasure, thanks. Kate, Charlie. Thank you for coming on. The spending bill that will keep the government open is missing a lot of stuff that Trump wants, including a big allocation to build the border wall between the U.S. and Mexico. Um, but that's not exactly how the White House is spinning it. They say the spending bill will help them start building the wall anyway. There's a lot of money in there for border security. And Press Secretary Sean Spicer explained it this way. Are those photos of fences or walls? That is called a bollard wall. That is called a levee wall. That's the wall that no, no, no. I'm just, no, no. There are various types of walls that can be, be built. Under the legislation that was just passed, it allows us to do that. As we've mentioned, that is called a levee wall on the left. That is called a bollard wall. Huh? So that's not a wall. It's a levee wall? That's what it's actually called. <laughs> when is a wall not a wall? <laughs> is it a fence? Oh. I don't know. It was just, it was, it was really, the clip really struck me because he was so ready. He was so ready to talk about how this was actually going to be a wall. He was so pumped. He was like, I got it. I got the, oh my God, I'm prepared. Finally, like, here it is. I got the, I got the visuals. They're right over here. And then it just became this existential debate over what is a wall and what is a fence. Um, Like, I, I... In pro-Trump media world and like in like places, you know, like 4chan or whatever, there there's been for the longest time, like not just not just this enthusiasm for the wall, which is like crazy because it's a wall and they're like not, you know, really exciting things, but also like the the explicit details of the wall, like materials. And it's like shopping for furniture. Well, (laughs) again, it goes back to, it goes back to like, do you take Donald Trump seriously or literally? Because you remember on the campaign trail, the wall was like the thing that he talked about. Mexico was going to pay for it. It was going to be, I think, 20 feet high. I forget how wide it was going to be, but it was going to stretch from, you know, just the entire border of Mexico. And then, you know, we got to this place where they're negotiating the spending bill and even most Texas border Republicans are like, oh, no, we're not actually going to build a wall <laughs> the entire length of the, of the border. It's not going to happen. Yeah, there seems to be this idea. And, and I guess, you know, it is kind of <laughs> to, to give a little credit to like it. it's hard to wrap your head around how difficult it is to, you know, to just how big our southern border is and how difficult it is to execute building like a formidable defense like that Um, it's big there's there's a river that goes through a lot of it a lot of it is private land that the government would actually have to take back uh which is something that republicans are just is like it's like an anathema to them you know to um to have the government take back private land to build a wall. And so it it is like when you get into the nitty gritty, as with everything else, it is not so simple as to just construct, you know, a giant, a, a giant wall. But as Sean Spicer pointed out, there's lots of different kinds of walls. There sure and some are. walls can be fences. <laughs> but yeah. they're spinning this as they're spinning this bill as a as a total win for them because they're getting, you know, millions more dollars and, you know, beefed up border security, which is something that, you know, Democrats can 
can support. But Mike, my, my, in in DC, uh, like, what are you, are you do people do people buy this, or I mean, is this just being called out for the spin that it is? I think it's being called out for the spin that it is. I mean, if you watch the that clip, the the reporter that was asking those questions was a was a reporter from Breitbart, and Breitbart obviously has been very uh, very pro wall. So I think people both on the right and the left sort of see that um, Sean and the administration is struggling a little bit with their message <laughs> around yeah. when a wall is a wall. I think the thing that is important to convey is how you know like or or what or what this sort of what what spicer's like urgency enthusiasm sort of you know uh like gritting through his teeth as this thing kind of this what we just played spirals out a little i think you know it, it focuses on i think maybe that the white house realizes how much this means to like trump's core like his base that it means is, everything it was like a top campaign promise yeah is, yeah I, like I just, what it was i think that's a total like that's like a like a, a a liberal bubble thing like you either think that it like you know that it's a metaphor or that you think that it's kind of si- silly or that you think but like this is this is truly like like i think there's just this huge contingent of like of wall or bust and i don't and i <laughs> And boy, I don't know if they like uh, what is it like a, a like a, a semi bollard or something like that. <laughs> They're not having that. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, that's not gonna fly. We need fences. No, we don't need fences. We need a big wall. <laughs> I'm really excited for future press conferences where it's like when you go to Lowe's or Home Depot and they give you like the paint swatches. Like I'm hoping that Sean's gonna come out with <laughs> a series of wall swatches. Um, where it's like you take them home with you. Put him up, you know. Decide which one looks the, the best. See how it feels. Sit with it for a day, and then you know, uh, come back to me and and you know, what can I do to put you in a wall today? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we will keep uh, America updated on the progress. So um, this has been illuminating. Thanks, Kate. <laughs> Welcome back, Charlie. Oh my lord. Do you feel like you missed a lot? I don't know. <laughs> No One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer and Eleanor Kagan. The show is edited by Catherine Miller. Production support comes from Agaranesh Ashagre and Veronica Doolin. Our music is by Beauty Pill. You can find us on Twitter at Kate Nocera and at C. Warzel or Charlie Weasel.